We need to assert our liberties, we need to assert our rights, and we need to do that with confidence. So tonight, I was tasked from Joe and David to talk to you about religious liberty. I am going to try as hard as I can not to make this boring. So it is, it is a little out of my wheelhouse. You know, I'm a pastor, and so I'm used to, hey, we get in a scripture, and we move from there. This is going to be a little more topical, but I thought what we should do is start with kind of a, a thesis sense, a topic sense, and we're going to move from there. So this is it. Religious liberty is not a mechanism for self-preservation, but a biblically-based concept useful for gospel advancement. So from that, I want to give three principles, okay, that we're going to get from that sense. One, and they're pretty obvious, religious liberty is not a protective mechanism. It's not for self-preservation. And then two, it is actually a biblically-based doctrine. It's not something that Americans just made up. And then three, it is a tool. It is helpful for gospel advancement. It is something that can help build the kingdom, and we should all care about that. So before we begin, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for allowing me to be here with FBC. I pray, Lord, that you speak through me and just use me as a vessel to share this important doctrine with the folks that are here. I pray that we will hear it, that we will be emboldened to to share our beliefs and share them unashamedly because we have protections that we fortunately have in this country that allow us to do that. I pray that we will honor you with all of our conduct and our words throughout this next week. In your name I pray, amen. Okay, so I don't have a crazy amount of time, and one of the things I wanted to make clear, we're not going to get into the substance of the First Amendment. I know. I really wish we could. I wish we could get into Establishment Clause things, free exercise, freedom of speech, freedom of association. We don't have time. I would gladly take your questions afterward if you have them. I'm also going to give you my email address if you want to talk about those things. I'd love to. But what we're going to talk about today is just kind of an overview of what this doctrine actually is. So, for sake of time, let's just dive in. The first one, Religious liberty is not about self-preservation. It's not about self-protection. When I chose to pursue this law school thing, and I, I thought it was a very uh, good endeavor, right? I thought, okay, I'm going, I'm going to help pastors, I'm going to help Christians. And I thought when I told my church this, now, granted, I was going to be leaving the church, but I thought, man, they're going to welcome me with open arms. They're going to think this is so great, and I'm just going to be loved for how good I am and how virtuous I am. It didn't quite go that way. Um, there was a mixed bag. Now, don't get me wrong. A lot of people thought it was a great pursuit and a good thing, and they were thankful that I was doing this. But then there were some that thought it was a little fishy. Obviously, the first thing people thought you're going for money, right? You're, you're going to, you, don't want, you want to make some money. Other people thought, oh, he's scared of his call to gospel ministry, so he's moving from that. But then others, and the where I want to focus right now, others thought that religious liberty and the pursuit to protect it was diametrically opposed to the gospel. And that's, that's, that's kind of an interesting view, but there are a lot of people that hold to this view. And so, so let me explain it to you. What I mean is that Christianity, for most of history, has been in a dominant and prosperous position. When I say dominance, I mean that Christianity has been viewed as normal, good, patriotic, culturally acceptable, even beneficial, right? Many of you can remember times that if someone came into town that was new, the first thing they need to do to help their business join the First Baptist Church, right? It was a way for people to get ahead. It was a way for people to get involved, and it was a benefit to them. The other thing is that 
it was prosperous. Being a Christian generally resulted in things going well for us, right? We were moral people. We're people that stick to what we say. We're committed. Things went well. But slowly, and I think everyone here would agree with this, slowly we have seen the ideas of Christianity as dominant and prosperous erode. Many of us have been used to being in the majority. Slowly, we are not the majority anymore. Did anyone see the new Gallup poll that came out two weeks ago? The new Gallup poll came out, and for the first time ever, under 50% of people that identify as churchgoers. First time in American history that we've had under 50%, it was 47%, it was still high, but that identify as churchgoers. I don't mean to alarm you, and I don't mean to scare you, but I do want to give you the reality that we are slowly becoming the minority and not the majority anymore. And so the critique of religious liberty is that we're all set in our ways, and we want the old times again. We want when it was prosperous. We want when we were dominant. And religious liberty is the mechanism to hold on to what we held so dearly, which was dominance in our culture. I think that that is an incorrect view of what the purpose of religious liberty actually is. I think that religious liberty is not a mechanism to protect the majority, but it's a mechanism to protect those who cannot protect themselves. It is a mechanism to protect the minority. It is a mechanism to protect those who are so below the majority that they cannot work in their own selves and do what they need to do to help. Let me give you an example, and, and, and I apologize that it's a Baptist history example. Um, when I was in, uh, well, this moves a lot. Um, when I, I won't lean on that. When I was in seminary, one of my favorite areas was Baptist history, and, and one of the things that we learned about was um, a, li- a lady by the name of Elizabeth Bacchus. Now, she is not very well known. Her son is pretty well known. He, his name was Isaac, and he's known to be a Baptist minister that, that pursued religious liberty and separation of church and state, and he's, he's very well known. But she, the, the point with her is that she was around during the time of the revolution. Now, just as a little backstory for you, and just bear with me for a second. We know that we came over, you know, the people came over, right? The Puritans came over from England because they wanted to move away from religious oppression, right? They didn't like this idea of the church and state being one thing. The Puritans wanted to come over, and they wanted to worship as they pleased, and so they came over to pursue religious freedom. The interesting thing, though, was that when they came, they did the exact same thing that England did to them. You see, the colonies, they all established established state churches. What that literally meant was the state, say Massachusetts, chose the congregational church as the state church. So each and every person that lived there had to give a tax that funded the church. Can you imagine that today? Can you imagine if New Mexico, uh, let's say they sponsored the Episcopalian church? Ooh. They sponsored the Episcopalian church, and each and every one of you, every time you gave your taxes, didn't give, they took your taxes, you had to give money to the Episcopalian church. Now, not only do we find that to be wrong, but think of the doctrinal differences between the Baptist church and the Episcopalian church, and you are funding it. That's what was going on during the revolution. And Elizabeth Backus said no. I would say that she kind of had a Rosa Parks type moment for religious liberty 
the, they, the, the police, or not the police, but the authorities came, and they came, and they would take the tax, and when they came, this, this near 60-year-old widow said, you know what, I'm not paying it. She's the first documented person to say, I'm not paying this tax. And they told her, well, ma'am, if you don't pay it, you're, you're going you're, you're gonna to go to jail. And, you know, I don't think anyone thought that actually happened, and it, they did. They put the woman in jail for two weeks. This poor widow, they put her in jail for two weeks. And that story is, is mainly important in Baptist history because a lot of people think it was the catalyst that started the movement of the separation of church and state in the colonies. But for us, that story is important because Elizabeth Bacchus was not the majority, correct? She was not in control. She was not the one that had the power. She was the minority. She was the one that was considered weak. She was the one that was told what to do and just to get in line. Elizabeth Bacchus is the reason we have religious liberty. Religious liberty protects not the strong, but the weak. It is meant to protect not the powerful, but the marginalized. The reason we have this doctrine, the reason we as Baptists should hold it so dearly and should pray for it, is not that we can have the status quo of what it was like in 1955, but that we can preserve people's religious beliefs, their sincerely held beliefs, that we can help hold those true to where there's not an oppressor, not a bully, not the majority telling them they can't think a certain way. That is what religious liberty is. It is not a self-preservation mechanism. So number two, religious liberty actually is a biblically-based concept. Now, let me make it very clear. You are not going to go to your index in your Bible tonight and find the phrase religious liberty. Jesus did not say religious liberty. Paul did not say religious liberty. It is not a concept that is explicitly spoke of in the Bible. I'm not going to try and tell you that. But we see characters in the Bible that with their actions and with their words support the ideas of what we think of as religious liberty, okay? So I want to talk with you about one of them. And one of them is in Acts chapter 16. You're welcome to turn there if you want, but I'm going to speed read it, so keep up. Acts chapter 16. We all know this, right? This is the famous story of Paul and Silas. So I'll give you a little background. We all know Paul and Silas, they're preaching the word. Then they're put in jail. When they're put in jail, then they start to sing. They start, I don't know, maybe they were dancing. I don't know. Um, I don't know if they were. Hopefully not. God help them. Uh, they began to pray. They began to, to speak loud of God. And, and, and the Holy Spirit or, or God poured out and, and the walls were shaken and they fell. And we remember what happens, right? We think, oh man, this is their time to get out. God's given them an escape. And they stay. And they stay and they speak with the jailer. And over time, we see because of these movements, because of what happened, the jailer and his family come to know Christ. Beautiful depiction of God's mercy in the Bible. Beautiful depiction of his saving grace and faith in Christ. It's a wonderful depiction. But one of the things that we don't think of very often when we hear this passage is what happened the next day. Remember, the next day, Paul and Silas, they stayed, everything's great. And then these officials, these magistrates, come up and say, oh, you guys can leave. And do Paul and Silas take it as that? And okay, we got to get out of here before they change their mind? Change their mind? Not exactly. 
So let's start in verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent to Paul, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison and do not know, and now they want us to go out in secrecy? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these things to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and took them out and asked them to leave the city. Interesting background with this passage. You have to understand the context uh, that Paul was in. There, there a lot of times weren't formal ways to file lawsuits. And one of the ways that you could file a lawsuit during this time was to publicly condemn someone. And so what Paul is doing here is he is essentially filing an implied lawsuit against these officials. He's coming forward and saying, wait, 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 wait. Do these men know that we have rights Do these men know that we are Roman citizens that were condemned without cause, that were jailed without reason? Do they understand this? Tell them to come tell us to our face. Now, you might ask, because in Scripture, Paul's pretty blunt a lot of times, right? A lot of times you might think, oh, he's just wanting to take a shot at them. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think Paul did this to get revenge. I don't think Paul did this to shame the magistrates. I think Paul did this. Scripture doesn't say exactly. I'm assuming. Because he wanted to set a precedent. He had those magistrates come into the public square, come where everyone could hear, and he let them have it. He let them understand that I am a Roman citizen. I have rights. You have infringed on those rights, and what you did is wrong, and you better watch out. You better watch out because my friends are coming. They're going to come back. And you better not do it again because there will be problems because I have rights as a citizen of Rome, and I am asserting them right now. We need to be like Paul. We have rights. We have many more rights than Paul had. Let me make it clear. They were limited. This was now at the time when Caesar was in control. This was now a dictatorship. Paul had certain rights, but you know what we have now? We are basically like Caesar. We live in a democracy. Our voice is heard. Our voice goes to the ballot box. Our voice makes legislation. We should not stand and, stand and stay, come back when people tell us our rights should We should sit our rights down, and we should move on. We should be like Paul. We should stand up for what God has given us, be thankful for the country that we live in, and we should use them to influence the society that we live. So not only is religious liberty not a self-preservation mechanism, it is biblically based, and then lastly, religious liberty is useful for gospel advancement. Now there's a famous phrase that says the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. And God has used persecution throughout history 
for gospel advancement. I want to make that very clear. God has used persecution throughout the history of the church to move forward the gospel. There is nothing that is going to stand in the way of God and his plan. If you are persecuted or if you're not, he does not care. He is going to move forward with his purposes and his plans anytime he wants to. But nowhere in Scripture are Christians instructed to pray for persecution. Actually, in 1 Timothy 2.2, Paul uses religious liberty as a way to show that the gospel can be advanced. Let Let me read it to you. He says, First of all, I urge you with supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving to be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead to peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified lives. This is good. It is pleasing in the sight of the Savior, who desires all people to be saved, to come to the knowledge and truth. Pray for the kings so that we can live quiet and peaceful lives. Now, if you understand, at this time when Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, Things aren't good for Christians. There is massive amounts of persecution. There are extreme measures brought against Christians. So the question is begged, why pray for the leaders? I think the answer is really not very complicated. Christians, we, Baptists, have all believed that saving faith must be genuine faith. It cannot be brought forward by force. I mean, we just saw this in Acts 16, right? The verse right before we started in Acts 16.31 says, he says to the jailer, Paul says, believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. He didn't say, let me persuade you of Jesus. Let me hold you against the wall. Take Jesus. He says, you make the personal decision for yourself to believe and you will be saved. To defend religious liberty is to recognize that every person is accountable as an individual. No one has the right to decide who and how another person worships. That is an individual choice. Saving faith must be authentic and cannot be compelled. As Isaac Bacchus, who we talked about his mother earlier, once said, Christ will have no press soldiers in his army. Knowing this, knowing that faith needs to be genuine and done in a personal manner, that is why we believe that the state has no role in determining what a person holds as ultimate. They are neither capable or competent to command religious beliefs and spiritual duties on citizens. That is why religious liberty advances the gospel because it opens the roadway. Let me give you an example. If you were going tomorrow to, oh, I just don't know this area very well. Um, Okay, if I'm going to Dallas, I know that decently because I drive there to go home. If you're going to Dallas, you put it in your GPS and you, usually there's a couple of routes that are brought up, correct? And you can take the scenic route, which I'm like, who has time for the scenic route? Um, Or there's three random routes that are 30 minutes longer. And then there is what? The fastest route. What are you going to click on? Unless you're just wanting to take your time, which many people aren't in, in our culture, 
You're going to take the fastest route. You're going to take the route that gets you directly from point A to point B. You're going to get there no matter what, right? You're going to get there, but you want to get there as fast and as easy as possible. If they tell you, hey, there's this new road that no one's driving on, you're going to take it, right? It gets you there fastest. That's how we should think about salvic opportunities. Christ is going to act. God is going to get his purposes done no matter what happens. And you should hold to that and have hope in that, that he is going to act and work no matter what happens. However, shouldn't we as Christians want the open four-lane highway for the presentation of the gospel? Shouldn't we? Our duty, it is our job to try with all of our might, with prayer and supplication and and working in our communities, to keep that road wide open. We want people to have as many opportunities as they can to hear about Jesus so that they can be impacted and that he can work in their lives and they can be transformed. We do not want intervention from a third party that superimposes their majoritarian beliefs on those who might be weaker, who might not be the majority. Religious liberty is an endeavor that is not only biblically based, it advances the gospel. It is not about self-preservation, but it is about protecting the minority. It is about protecting the weak. It is something that each and every one of us should pray about and should pursue. I told you we were going to get a kind of a brief overview. I wanted to give us plenty of time. Now, now I want to make it clear. I, I, I don't think it is appropriate for me to take questions on this topic from the pulpit. I think we might get a little political for the pulpit. And so what I'm going to do is in a minute, I'm going to pray. We're going to finish. I'm going to stand right here. This looks good. And if you have any questions, you want to get into the substance of the establishment clause, bring it on. I'm very excited to do that. Okay, and we can talk about these things. And I hope in the future, maybe we can get into the substance of these rights and everyone here can become confident in them and assert them because that's why you have them, right? To use them, not so they lay dormant and people knock them over. So if you have pen and paper, I'd love to give you my email address if you're not able to talk to me now. Um, and, And I don't expect you to. I'm not trying to act like I'm some big deal up here, but I know there are going to be questions. So here's my email address if you're interested. It is simple. It's Christian, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N, dot B, as in boy, dot Edmonds, E-D-M-O-N-D-S, at gmail.com. So Christian, dot B, dot Edmonds, at gmail.com. So we're going to close in just a second, but I, I just... I just Hope that you were encouraged. I didn't, I didn't want to instill fear or anger. I wanted everyone here to feel empowered. I want you to know that you, have, that you have the ability to do these things. You have the ability to feel confident in your rights and that they're not going to go away and that you can protect yourself and protect those who are less fortunate and might not have the power. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for allowing me to be here today and speak with this wonderful group of people, Lord. I pray that you will just allow us all to understand the, the biblical nature of this concept and that we will pray for it and that we will hope that it continues and that we will use it to advance the gospel. That is our job. That is our goal. And I pray that it is used in that way. 
We thank you, Lord, and we pray that if there's anyone here that does not know you, that they, will, that they will surrender to you and they will come to know you. And we just thank you for all that you do for us throughout these days. In your name I pray. Amen. And thank you so much. We appreciate you doing that. He's going to be here. Like I said, if you want to come ask him some questions or email him, he's always good to talk to. He and I have had some good discussions about uh, church, about football. He's always wrong about his football discussions. He can't pick any team right. But that's a blessing. Um, when I when I talk in the next few weeks about about Beach Baptist, I'll talk a little bit about the role uh, historically that we played in religious liberty. Uh, most people don't realize how important uh, Baptist did on all that. It was a Baptist pastor who uh, leveraged his popularity with James Madison to get James Madison to agree uh, to sponsor the Bill of Rights in, in exchange for that Baptist pastor not running against him with his ton of popularity, and it was a Baptist. Uh, association in Danbury, Connecticut, uh, in writing to Thomas Jefferson. They got Thomas Jefferson to uh, establish the aspect that there is a wall of separation between church and state to protect the church from the state. So it's a fascinating uh, subject. And a few few minutes early, that way you can come and uh, talk to him, and we uh, appreciate it. And thanks a lot, man. And uh, appreciate you doing a great job. He's a pretty good speaker. And so uh, we uh, appreciate you doing that. Y'all are... uh, Dismissed.